Welcome to a very special season of Outside Inside Radio. I'm your host, Kathy Foley-Meyer, and for this season, we will be interviewing writers who contributed to the recently published book called The Sentences That Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison. The book is part of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Initiatives. Founded in 1922, PEN America describes itself as, quote, a nationwide community of writers and literary professionals, as well as devoted readers and supporters who join with them to carry out PEN America's mission. PEN America advocates for writers under threat worldwide and public policies that bolster freedom of speech and offers platforms to lift up the work and views of those whose voices have too often gone unheard or been ignored. And we're going to spend the entire season speaking with writers from the book. And I'd like to welcome today Luis J. Rodriguez and Luis K. Waukegan. They are both poets uh, featured in the book. Welcome to you both. We're really excited to have you join us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So I'm going to start in the order in which you appear in the book. So the first question to Luis is generally, is a general one about poetry. Um, I know for me, and I, as a writer and and also as a reader, um, I'm sometimes a little bit intimidated by when it comes to poetry. You know, poets have a sort of like otherworldly feeling about them. And poetry kind of has a, this kind of elevated energy that can feel less accessible than other forms of writing. It's not, you know, necessarily true, but, um, and it definitely doesn't seem to be the case for you. So my first question is, why do you think that is? And secondly, can you describe for our audience your creative process? How do you go about getting into that creative headspace to write poetry? Well, as I say in the book, um, Poetry is like painting with words. So there's another level of how you use words. Words become your uh, your palette. And it's about the imagery. It's about the metaphors. It's about the feelings you can evoke. It's all these things that may not be necessarily what uh, a prose writer would do, either it's for fiction or journalism or that. Not that there can't be poetry in those things. But in general, poetry is trying to evoke something deep. And that's what I, I call what I do, so talk, because I think you have to go to that level to get to the kind of poetry that I, I think most poets uh, are interested in. Do you feel like you always, so you never felt intimidated by poetry at all? You always felt there was something you could do? No, I, I just never bothered thinking about that too much. You know, I don't have <laughs> that academic um, strengthening, and I, I'm not against it. I never went to college for this. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, I never graduated is. from college, so uh, I'm not against it. Obviously, people that go to school and learn what they got to learn is important. I kind of self-taught, and then I, I hanged around a lot of poets, and that's what <laughs> helped me. And then I read a lot of poetry, so uh, I think that's just a hard way of doing it. But being in the poetry community as long as I have, started in Chicago, I actually started in East LA and then Chicago, and then mm-hmm. coming back to LA. Um, I've learned a lot just by being among them, uh, hearing them, and also reading so much poetry that um, it's influenced what I do. But I also know one thing. All poets have to find their own voice. And voice, is, to me, is a very important part of poetry. That you got your own voice. You need to bring, make sure you, it's clear, it's expressive, that um, 
you got the integrity of that voice and bringing it out. And so to me, that's really what I try to emphasize when I'm in the institutions uh, with the men and women, because I do both men and women and young people, is make sure you find what you're trying to say authentically. Right. Yeah. And how do you get into that headspace for the soul talk? Is it always immediately accessible or... Uh, sometimes it all depends. You know, what I do is I start out with story, my story, and then it evokes the stories of others. I have a, a thing where I say, you know, we need to examine our lives, as Socrates would say. You know, an unexamined life is not worth living. So I say, well, let's examine our life. Poetry can help you examine your life. Um, An honesty examination is very important. Two, uh, evocation, to evoke something. Not just what's in your head. But because poetry has a lot of head stuff too, with language and what word you're going to use and everything, but it's really evoking some depth, mining some very emotional parts of you that you may not be able to do, especially in a prison setting, for example. Uh, and then, of course, the third thing is that I call it the three E's: expression, which I talk about in, in my essay. Expression being how do you present it? How does it become art? How does it become something that somebody else would listen to and say, "I want to." stop what I'm doing and really read this poem. You know what I mean? It's called um, aesthetic arrest. And I tell people, not the kind of arrest that a lot of these men and women are used to, but I'm talking about arrest by you're being held by art in some level. Poetry can do that. Right. I gotcha. Louise, I'm going to put the question to you in a slightly different way. So did you know from the get-go that poetry was the form in which you wanted to apply your voice or did you try other forms first? And then can you also share your creative process? Yeah, sure. Uh, No, um, I didn't automatically just kind of jump into poetry. I remember being a little girl, and I talked about this in my essay as well. And um, first of all, I have to say, I love that aesthetic arrest idea. (laughs) I I do too. You're under arrest creatively. (laughs) Can I write that down? I don't know. I know. You have the right to not remain silent. (laughs) Yeah. But no, I don't. I don't. I don't think that that's what I chose. I think. Um, I think it just kind of organically just came in a fixated way, and I and I mean that like I would use like pastel colored ink when I was younger. I intentionally really tried to make make my poetry visually pretty. I totally understand that because I kind of did the same thing with curly cued writing yeah, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, it was so deep. It was. It right. was I, I didn't share it with anybody. It was just like my my release, right? And so I don't know if, if it was because it was hard stuff to talk about, hard stuff to release that that I wanted it, you know, visually acceptable um, for myself. But I, I, I don't know. And I'm really good at um, fragments. I've learned that. Well, <laughs> now that I'm in my 40s, I'm better at fragments than, than anything else. And so um, that kind of just, just works. My creative process now is different now that I'm not um, incarcerated. It it's almost seemed easier because I would have this group or, or I would have this class and I would have this designated time, you know, where I was just surrounded by other writers and we, we would intentionally sit down and, and, and free write or talk about our writing or edit and do all this stuff. And well, now it's up to just me to intentionally you know, provide that air around me. And um, the, our world has been a roller coaster these past few years and past few months in our communities. I know my community isn't alone in this, but 
we it's just been a struggle yeah. you know in so many different aspects and so now my writing process is a lot different it's more of journal like yeah <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get through that you know it's thank thank goodness we have this and so so it's a little bit different and uh, like I was saying earlier we the Midwest just survived a really good storm and so through that my my writing was thankfully I I have electricity so that yeah. I can, I can extend that to my to my neighbor or to my elderly mom so it's different and, and I really appreciate the evolution of creative process it's not it, it's not the same when I was 16 right. that definitely differed when I was you know 25 or you know 32 and now that I'm in my 40s and you know, so it evolves with me, and that—that's one one aspect of creativity that I admire. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful thing, and I honestly I can't decide whether the pandemic, well, in some ways it was good for creative souls because we were isolated from people, and you know we could work on whatever it is we're working on. Um, for me, it was visual stuff and and writing, but also we were so isolated from one another and. Um, you know, we do need that human to human contact and to not have it for such an extended period of time. Um, and then to have all that sort of anger come out kind of publicly and circulate and recirculate. I think, you know, we're, we still don't know how much damage the pandemic actually did and it's not over yet. So, you know, it's a, it's a, I guess it depends on if you're a glass half full or glass half empty person. <laughs> I'm kind of on both sides of that. Um, and I wanted to ask you both. So who are the poets now or, or before like that, that influenced you in your work? Well, let me see. I didn't really know poetry at all. I didn't, nobody taught it to me in school. Mm-hmm. So I showed up to a poetry reading. I was on heroin. I was 18 years old. And somebody invited me to this poetry reading, and I wanted to get out of there because I wanted to score. That was essentially the story. But again, an aesthetic arresting happened. I listened to these three performance poets, and they happened to be the three best poets of the country. This is in Berkeley, California. I didn't know. I didn't know who they were. It was um, Jose Montoya, uh, the great kind of Mm -hmm. godfather of poetry for us. What's his name? Dave, David Henderson, who was the leading African-American poet at the time, and Pedro mm-hmm. Bietti, the Puerto Rican poet from New York. They were all reading together. And I wow. was hurting and trying to score, but I was so held by their words. And uh, it actually was the beginning of me changing who I was because I wanted to do what they did. I don't know what it was, why it influenced me, why it impacted me. I don't think other people got impacted. Right. It's like destiny, you know, something, sometimes you're turning left and you should turn right. And, and but the left was right. actually the right thing. And you're going in the way of your destiny. And this was a destiny thing. So for me, that's important because that, that helped me. Um, you know, I, I was a very troubled young man, juvenile hall, various jails and institutions. I was in two adult facilities, but I got out of that very young. Because of that, because right. I got help, because people saw that I was trying to get my life. I got off heroin, which is very hard to do. I was seven, seven years into using heroin. and um, But I never forgot. Those poets influenced me, but I never forgot the others that were going to steal all my homies, people I knew. 
So when I was 25 years old and I started becoming a journalist, I went back into the prisons, this time not as a criminal. Right. This time I came back to teach. And I started at Chino Prison in California. I think it was 1981. So it's been more than 40 years that I've been going to institutions. Um, And it's changed my life in working with these men and women. Um, uh, Just so you know, as people do know, my own son was in prison for close to 15 years. Mm -hmm. And I know that I helped him. You know, he told me, I'm his dad and I didn't want to be his mentor. But he says, nobody mentors me, dad. You're the only one. And I feel bad, but sometimes... Parents have to do that, which is sad. There should be other mentors. I am mentoring him. He's doing good. He's out. Um, the sad thing is I have a granddaughter. Great. My granddaughter is in prison. Mm-hmm. So now I have to think about how I'm going to help her. I have to do mention this. I just wrote a piece for the LA Times on this. It just showed up yesterday. Uh, I lost a grandson to fentanyl last month. Oh, so I'm so I think, sorry. I think what Louise is talking about is very real. The storms are still there. Our communities are being hit all kinds yeah. of ways. Either if it's a a storm, real storms, or the storms of just life, we're still living it. And I find that poetry was healing for me, and I think it's important for me to give that as a tool, as a as a release, as a way for people to get healed themselves. So in many ways, I wasn't influenced by other poets in that sense. Mm-hmm. I was influenced by the power of teaching and working with people and seeing them find their own um, means to become healed and that helped me. And I still do that. And I'm sad that I couldn't help my own grandson. Unfortunately, right. he tried. You know how it is when you're in, I was on the streets too on drugs. So I know right. my granddaughter was on crystal meth. He was using everything. And then fentanyl took him. You know, you're chasing him down the street. You don't know where they're at. You know, the, you know how that world is. Yeah. And they don't know what they're getting when they. You're trying to save them, but you really, it's. Yeah. It's, that really was. It's very hard. Really hard. So. We all feel bad about it, but I also think that I still have to do what I was doing even when I was young, help others, help myself by helping others. Thank you. And Louise, what about you? Who are the the poets that you look to or, you know, either now or in the past Um, for inspiration? uh, All of them. You you know, I'm I'm so (laughs) open, but um, I do try to turn into like a a super, uh, super fan um, when I'm with or read Hyde Erdrich, um, uh, Ojibwe poet, and just mm. uh, she's phenomenal in every way. And I, I remember the 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 first time I read her, um, her writing it, and the poem specifically is the girl in geography class. And I was incarcerated, and I was in the prison library, and it was just this small, you know, chapbook, you know, and I'm just like. Right. And up how they doing whatever and it just and 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 I can still see myself, you know, and she and just about that that one line, you know, like she just the the girl in the poem was getting back to herself. Mm-hmm. And and what an identity crisis you have when you're incarcerated, right? And trying to return to the truth of who you are while you're daily being bombarded with this um, idea of your identity being a number right and and kind of just acquiescing to the to the powers that be there and um, you know fighting that all the time so that that poem really really got me but um, you know I want to actually want to talk a little bit about um, the title of that poem is interesting the girl from the geography class because you, you know you are 
Native American, and there's a whole sort of different geography. Like we could actually look at a map and the geography for your people would be different than the sort of imposed geography that we tend to use um, here yeah, in the yeah. United States. Yeah, just so many different implications, right? There's so many layers. And I love that um, that poetry and creative writing, creative prose allows the reader and the author to, to do that. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, you spoke earlier about imagery. You know, we're, I'm going to show you, I'm not going to tell you. And, th- and that's, that's the captivating part about it. And so it, if I have a favorite, she would definitely be a favorite. But anybody who is willing to a, call themselves a poet and write their truth down, brave enough to write that down, um, I'll, I'll be your fan. Um, I really am trying to stand up for um, Indigenous female voices right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there, There's a lot of pressure to silence our voice in, in, in multiple ways at this yes. moment um, for many people of color. And so we just have to stand up. We just have to stand up and support each other. So those poets that are, are trying to break the mold and trying mm-hmm. to, I'm your number one fan. So um, I love reading new poets, uh, reading new poets. Um, yeah. So I, I just, I love poetry. I love the way you express that. And I realize now that, um, you know, poet poetry is also a way of reclaiming identity um, to yourself because, you know, we all have identities that are imposed on the outside. Um, so we have to fight those. And then you have to fight sort of hard not to impose that identity on yourself. Right. So and I think we've had, we, we are breaking the mold and breaking the lie that poetry um, is designated by this kind of white patriarchal yes. authorship. We know that, we know that's. That's what I meant when I said the intimidation <laughs> factor that. No. You know, because the, you know, we start out in the popular cult- culture, um, you know, you get Virginia Woolf or, you know, this, this kind of very elevated, um, yeah. I mean, it's not only, it can be men, but it can also be women, but it's definitely a, you know, you have to be a learned person for poetry to be meaningful. And that's definitely not true. So. Yeah. 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 So. Louise, I want to ask you about one of the sections in the book, the one you have called Opening the Heart, where you say, quote, poetry more than any genre taps into the wells of trauma, betrayal, abandonment, grief, anger, and joy, end quote. And I'm wondering why do you think that is, that it is a greater mainline to the heart than, say, memoir? Um, I, I think partly because we've been devoiced. I don't know how else to say. And I think Louise is right. I mean, the, the the indigenous voices, the voices of people of color, oppressed peoples, we've been devoiced, you know, and, and it's very hard to be in that prose world, which as you say, is kind of the canon is governed by mostly white males, rich white males. And so what, where do you go? Poetry seems to come, I think from something, like I say, it comes from your bones, it comes from inside of you. And I find it to be um, very hard. In, in other words, I couldn't speak from the heart in the world that I was in. You mm-hmm. know, in a lot of these people and institutions, it, they can't either. You know, these men sitting there, they can't reveal themselves. They have to have. Right. You have to protect your heart in that situation. Yeah. And um, and this is I why I say the 
the old Aztec way of thinking of face and heart as a person, you have to align that. And and I talk to these these um, the incarcerated men and women I work with about what's your face and heart? What are you presenting to the world? What's deep? And you, we need to know what's the deep part. And it needs to be aligned at a certain point because while we're all walking around with masks, we're not revealing. So I think when we say the poetry gets to the heart, it means it's re- revealing hard, deep things. Sometimes it scares the heck out of you. And I tell people, if you're writing and it scares you, keep writing. Yeah. If it yeah. makes you cry and fall, go to that difficult place. Yeah, go there and keep going because that's one of the few times that you can do that. You know how much books are written and you realize they don't reveal nothing, you know, and then you get to those one one or two books that do and it holds you like again. So I, I think that's that's the way to go. Go with your heart first. It's not to say that the mind doesn't work and other parts of you ain't working, but go with the heart first and see where it takes you. Right. Go with the heart first and the mind will catch up. Mm-hmm. So, Louise, um, one of the quotes that struck me from your section is where you state, quote, I carried long-held shame, which made me hesitant to call myself a writer, end quote. And I was thinking about the concept of shame, um, which is key, I think, in terms of, especially in terms of incarceration, um, because prison can be a space where shame is sort of kept and grown. You could almost say it's nurtured there um, and it can stain your soul and separate us from not only from one another, but from the concept that we carry of ourselves as human beings. And I feel like shame is an impediment to thriving. So can you talk a little bit about that, overcoming that as a writer and how overcoming it helps you move through life, whether you are incarcerated or not? Yeah, shame is... uh... Shame is a force to be reckoned with, and I think um, there immediately what what I think about is uh, this concept that other people are just kind of uh, coming to know as well is historical trauma. And people of color, uh, we are we are born with historical trauma in our DNA because of the people that came before us and the atrocities that happened to our ancestors and in. Um, you know, indigenous and uh, Latino and, you know, the, the black culture. I mean, we're, it's embedded in, right. us, you know, and, and we know what it is and that, and what that looks like is she. Right. So we, if, well, if I'm, if I call myself a writer, what am I doing? I'm drawing attention toward myself. Right. And I can easily be knocked down. I can be ridiculed. I can be attacked. And, well, no, you're not because writing is for rich white men. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not what you are. And, so yeah, there's shame that that's that's attached to um, standing up for your truth and expressing it in all of its ugly forms, right? And and not everybody's ready for that. So there's you know, there's this pressure, and you know, overcoming it is is exactly what Lewis said, right from the heart. Just 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 write it out. Go to that deep place, and and poetry won't let you be generic. If, if, if you're being honest, poetry will not let you, oh, I'm just going to stay on the sidewalk here. No, uh-uh, I want you to go right into the gutter because that's where the meat is. Right. That's where the, that's where the heart connection is, right? That's how we, that's how we recognize each other. That's how we say, I felt that. I know that. I didn't grow up in California, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. Heart, that's truth. That is dissolving that shame and saying, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to make that voice over me. Not anymore. So 
just I continue, right? Continue to go to that hard place and and finding that support where you can with who with who you can. Being a mentor for someone else, listening to someone else, walking with somebody else. Yeah, yeah. You create that zone of protection mm-hmm. for yourself because that's what gets you through those moments when, as you said, we are people of color are often subject to these temporal threads from way, you know, hundreds of years in the past. And sometimes you'll be going through your life and one of them, you'll feel one of them. You'll have an experience where that temporal thread literally from the past comes into the present and like jolts you. And it's just, it can be a shock, you know, and you're like, oh, okay, that's why that happened. Oh my goodness. And, you know, having that zone of protective creativity of other people around you to support you is key. Well, we have that responsibility, right? And my mom talks about that with like education. You know, there's there's freedom in that and there's a responsibility in that. And I believe that so much as as writers, as creative curators, um, that there's there's so many case and points happening right now that people are not allowed to speak their truth or stand up for somebody else's truth. And, and right. we see that I don't, I don't have to name a specific country right. no, you don't. where people's lives are being taken because they're standing up for truth and they're standing up for freedom and shame dispelling. I think they're also maybe standing up for the freedom of other people's right to just exist. Yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's a freedom we sometimes forget about, you know, and I feel like creativity helps us reinforce that over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, that our lives have value and we have the right to exist as yes. human beings yeah. on this earth. So, which actually leaves me to a quote, Louise, from your essay that I really loved. You say, Every time a guitar is played, it becomes out of tune. Life is the same way. To live means to go off balance, into disharmony, out of alignment. And I think it's really interesting because I feel like we actually approach life from the opposite perspective. We spend a lot of time striving for harmony and balance to the exclusion of all else, as if there's nothing to be learned or gained from the parts that are out of whack, from the lack of balance. Can you talk a little bit about how that Lack of balance. Um, you know, I know from uh, yeah, my indigenous point. elders, I um, who said that life is mostly out of balance. You know, <laughs> it, it, people think, well, you're going to look for harmony. You're going to walk around harmony. Says so most of the time we can't, but you're always seeking it. You're always going there. You do it daily. You do it by minute. You do it all the time. But you're but to live means you're going to go off balance. If you don't want to live. Fine, you'll probably be balanced somewhere, but you're sitting unplayed. You know how these people have these guitars and they're all tuned, but they never play them. (laughs) You know, the sad thing about life is it's full of pain and you have to deal with that. You know, I have a poem called The Peace of Death in Life, and it's the only really poem I wrote about heroin uh, because I I wrote about it in my memoir, but I didn't really write too many poems about it. Uh, And because I always felt that what I was looking for was to numb everything. I don't want to be in pain no more, whatever that was. And the sad thing about that, it's like when people say they think heaven is all peaceful and there's no pain. I keep thinking they're trying to go to a heroin eye. You know what I mean? That's what the heaven is, where you don't feel nothing no more. And so I learned this really hard lesson. If I want to live, I have to accept pain. Pain is life. 
that's what it is. I don't mean it's all pain. Right. You accept the pains of your life, the, the things that are rough. Then you can also accept the joys if you get through them, if you understand them, if you understand how to deal with them. So I think learning how to be in an imbalanced world and learning how to be in balance yourself by knowing how to tune yourself up. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. what life is. And poetry is one way that I tune myself up. It's how I get myself back in a level of balance that I can go to the next day. When I lost my grandson, I mean, it was devastating. Everything gets upside down. My world gets, I don't know how many times my world has been turned upside down. That's uh, right. true for both of you. I mean, you can always remember, man, the whole world's upside down. How do you get back? Back from that, you tune yourself up. To me, poetry, art, creativity, singing a song, dancing, whatever it might be, anything like that just gets you to that place where you can keep going. You have yeah. to keep going. Um, my, the, the mother of my grandson went a little crazy there. I don't blame her. I mean, I, yeah. I don't blame her. And she, uh, his friends came to the funeral, and she started screaming and yelling at them because she's blaming them for the fentanyl. They're all on fentanyl. They're all messed up. It's not their fault. Something right. else is happening. But I get why she's mad. But the idea being that let's get back to a level of tuning up so we can say, it, it, I think what Louise said is very important, the systemic nature of all this stuff. Get back to something that really gets to the heart of it. Otherwise, we're just attacking each other. I don't think it makes any sense to attack his friends who were hurting. And I, mm -hmm. I actually pulled together the whole group, and we started voicing and they said some very beautiful things about my grandson. They knew him. They loved him. 22-year-old kid. They and, and she started to cry. She began to realize right. they're not, they're caught up in the same web all of us are caught in. Exactly. So it's again, a loving circle. Exactly. So that's why I think tuning up, yes, we need to get tuned up. Find your art. Find your poetry. Any way that allows you to get tuned up so you can get back to a world in which things are pretty, not too, not too balanced. Right. Well, Actually, to that end, um, Louise, I'm going to ask both of you, Louise, first to share a poem or, you know, two with our audience um, and kind of tell us a little bit about what you would like to share. Uh, Louise or Louise? Louise? Yeah, sorry, I meant Louise. <laughs> Louise, do you want to share? Um, so I'm going to share a poem that I actually wrote about. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I meant Lu Louise. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard because you guys, you, your names I'm, sound the same on the air, but. Um, yeah, you know, so. yeah, I was just. I'm going to step out for a second, but go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I always just paused first. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, that's fine. That That's fine. And if you, um, so you're going to share your work, but if you also, I was thinking, if you wanted to share um, also the work of the poet that you mentioned, that would also be fine, but you don't have to. Uh, I, I wish I did. And I was, when we were talking about it, I, I was thinking about, cause I have this uh, board in my office of like a vision board type. And right. I look at it for inspiration, you know, cause I'm at a computer eight hours a day. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, I should have that poem up there. That's okay. That's okay. So we'll, we'll just, you can just um, tell us a little bit about what you're sharing and um, yeah, and why. I just, I uh, got to, because of the recent snowstorm, I was able to just kind of be with my family. And um, so what I'm going to read is the, uh, the title poem from my, uh, from my first poetry collection. This is where, um, and this one just kind of, 
just speaks about my home and um and I think it started from a list poem in, in a free writing class years ago. Um, but this this is um, this is home, and it's it's just such a nostalgic feeling that this time of year. But I mean, all the time. But it's titled "This Is Where." I'm from Benashi's bloodline. That's Bill Baker. If you don't speak Ojibwe Moan, Ni Megizi Dodem. I'm from Six Mile. 49 and up the driveway, sitting on green boxes, watching cars. Sometimes their doors didn't match. I'm from Packer games on Sundays, Greyhound trips for Christmas, and Easter baskets with Carla. I'm from women with the same last name and a father none of us knew. I'm from the woods, northern, where pines and birch bark blanket both bends of tribal roads, paved and gravel. I'm from a single parent household, Michael Jackson cassette tapes, Purple Rain posters and latchkey kids. Title five programs, commods on pantry shelves, cucumbers from Gran Grandpa Jake's garden and a mean old dog named Turkey. I'm from crying won't change anything and you should have known better. I'm from punitive silence and where it's normal. Hugs are warm and forced Catholicism still weighs heavy on the mama's shoulders. Thank you so much. Thank you. I just got a whole sort of view of you from that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I could have... I think that's actually the power of poetry because the feeling I got from you is the same feeling that if we had sat and talked for like two hours, you actually gave it to me in about two minutes. Yeah. You know? That's the real power of poetry that Louis, that both of you were talking about. Yeah. So thank you very much. Yeah. Luis. Yes, that was very beautiful. Um, my mother has tribal roots with the Tarumara people of Chihuahua, Mexico. And it's really hard for Mexicans to know what the tribal roots are, but my mom always reminded us we're Tarumaras, Tarumaras. This was very important for me growing up. Uh, and one thing you should know, if you go to the Sierra Tarumara where the indigenous people are still there, mm -hmm. they're some of the healthiest people in the world because they walk for hours, they run, they right. do the big running games. They only eat the, the three sisters, corn, squash, and beans. They only have animals in the wintertime. There are other animals that the Spanish brought actually are used to fertilize the fields. They're very healthy. They don't have much. They're rich in culture and language. They still speak their language. But what happens is they get pushed out. You know, um, and my mother's family was pushed out and she was born in a ghetto in Chihuahua City called La Tarumara, in which people were still indigenous, but they were de-Indianized. You know what I'm saying? They right. church kidnapped them. They couldn't speak their language. They couldn't wear their traditions. And she grew up in that world, and they all got sick. Diabetes, heart disease, alcoholism, they had everything. And the more civilized they became, the more sickly they were. So by the time we ended up in Los Angeles, I was two years old, um, we moved to Watts which was a major community for me. And I moved back in my 20s when my kids were born. 
my first right. born. So Watts is one of my main communities, but my mom was very sick. She was obese. She had diabetes. She had no teeth because they had rotten. Um, she was in her, in her 20s. You know, she just was in pretty bad shape. Right. And I'm going to read you a poem about that. And it's because um, this is one of the things that she had issues with. The poem is called Heavy Blue Veins, Watts, 1959. This is one of my earliest memories. Mm -hmm. When I first started, you know how you first start to remember things. Yes. Heavy blue veins streak across my mother's legs. Some of them bunched up into dark lumps at her ankles. Mama periodically bleeds them to relieve the pain. She carefully cuts the engorged veins with a razor and drains them into a porcelain-like metal pail called a thina. I'm small, and all I remember are dreams of blood. Me drowning in a red sea, blood on sheets on the walls, splashing against the white pale and streams out of my mother's ankle. But they aren't dreams. It is mama bleeding into day and tonight, bleeding a birth of memory, my mother, my blood, by the side of the bed, me on the covers, and her slicing into a black vein and filling the pale into some dark, forbidding red nightmare which never stops coming, never stops pouring, this memory of mama and blood and Watts. Wow, that is so vivid and powerful. Yes, you're getting all the snaps here <laughs> for both of us. Yeah, I just, I mean, I was picturing your mother um, in her, you know, total physicality and, but also the sort of many threads of blood and life yeah. that you were, you know, evoking with those words. Thank you so much. It, you. Uh, yeah, it was really beautiful. And thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking with both of you today. Um, I'm almost completely done with the book, but um, again, I'm going to promote it. It's the sentences that create, Create Us, Crafting a Writer's Life in Prison, and it was recently published by PEN America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big shout out to Kate. Too, yeah. right? Yes, edited by Kate Smeissner. That girl, she is yeah. super cute. Yeah. <laughs> With a forward by Reginald Dwayne Betts. Yeah. Oh, so, thank yeah. you both again, and I wish you all the best in your future as creative people and mentors, and I look forward to Having seen your energy out there. Yeah, we more. Thank you. Back to you, both of you. Stay safe. You've been listening to an episode of Outside Inside Radio, brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts people experiencing incarceration. We are based at San Diego State University and have additional partnerships with three California State University campuses in Humboldt, Fullerton, and San Bernardino, and with UC Irvine. Prison Arts Collective is a project of California Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Outside Inside Productions are a way to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media created as an extension of our distance learning project 
in response to COVID-19. Thank you for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Outside Inside Radio.